Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Diplomatic History Channel here at New Books Network. Uh, my name is Grant Golub, and I'll be your host um, for today's episode. Uh, I'm a PhD candidate in the Department of International History at the London School of Economics and Political Science in the UK. Uh, my guest today is Professor Mark Galicchio, um, and we're here to talk about his book, which came out a little over a year ago, but during the pandemic time has become so distorted that it feels like it just came out yesterday. And the title of that book is Unconditional, The Japanese Surrender in World War II. Uh, Professor Galicchio is the uh, chair and a professor of history at Villanova University. Um, And he's also the author of Implaceable Foes, War on the Pacific, 1944 to 1945, which he co-wrote with Waldo Heinrichs, which won the Bancroft Prize for History. He's also the author of The Scramble for Asia, U.S. Military Power in the Aftermath of the Pacific War, and The Cold War Begins in Asia, American East Asian Policy and the Fall of the Japanese Empire. So he's the author of other books as well and numerous articles. Um, But that's just to give you a little taste. So, Mark, thank you so much for uh, coming on the show and joining me today. Uh, Well, it's my pleasure. And thank you for inviting me, Grant. Absolutely. So as I indicated to our listeners, we're going to be discussing your latest book, which is which is unconditional, which talks about the Japanese surrender in World War Two. And as um, you and I both know, and as many of our listeners know, um, this is a topic uh, that has been widely written about, discussed, and debated um, within historical circles, within the wider community, um, within political circles, um, even as World War II was still happening uh, in the final months of, of 1945. So I was wondering if you could tell our listeners why you've decided to um, sort of wade into this debate um, with this newest volume, and I guess sort of going on from that, telling us sort of what the book's all about and and what its core arguments are. Oh, sure. Um, Well, I wanted to find something that was uncontroversial to talk about. Uh, So I picked picked this subject. Um, Actually, I've been um, at work on this uh, for longer uh, than I wish to say, but I originally started thinking about this issue of unconditional surrender when I was writing my dissertation of all things, because I noticed at, uh, at that time within the Truman administration, there had been a debate over, uh, whether or not the United States should modify, um, this policy of unconditional surrender. And at the time I thought it was a kind of an internal discussion that was taking place. But over the years, um, I came to realize that it it was really much broader than that, that the public participated in it and that it was, it was actually very partisan uh, in, in the way people lined up uh, on this issue. And, and that uh, really interested me because the nature of that partisanship was very different from what 
we would um, imagine um, would be the case if we were looking back at it from today. I mean, I think many of your listeners probably are aware of the great controversy over the uh, Enola Gay exhibit at the Smithsonian. And, and at that time, it was the sort of so-called liberal or left-wing revisionist who had, art, who had criticized the policy of unconditional surrender in, the, um, in that museum display, in the, in the narrative for the museum. And conservatives defended the policy of unconditional surrender and, and you know, just uh, denounced the idea that uh, the Japanese were ever ready to surrender and, and all the rest. And, and, uh, and what struck me about that was that in 1945, when this debate took place, the sides were completely reversed. It was, you know, if, if you were a liberal, that was a pretty good predictor of where you stood on unconditional surrender. And, and it, you were for it in almost every instance. If you were a New Dealer, you were for imposing this policy on uh, Japan. And if you were a conservative and particularly a Republican, um, you were against it. And and to me, I, I mean, it just seemed like, I forget who it is. The, I think it's the, the writer, George Eliot, who says that, that um, history does repeat itself, but not without a change of costume. Um, and it, it seemed to me that the actors in this one not only changed costume, but they changed they exchanged the script that they were reading from, uh, and that really struck me as as a kind of an interesting phenomenon that indicated we really didn't have a, a good idea of um, this what this debate was all about in the summer of 1945. That it had been greatly, you know, in the latter part of the 20th century and the early 21st century, it had been greatly influenced by the debates and the culture wars of that moment and had become detached in a way from the way the actors at the time perceived the issue. And so, you know, my goal was to try and recover that lost uh, history. Um, and, And that meant sort of emphasizing the ideological and partisan nature of the policy and kind of getting into the domestic politics uh, of that period. Um, and so that's right. what I sought to do in the book. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I think that in, in recent, I mean, even just within the last year, there's been you know, several new books published on various aspects of either this period or, or the war in particular. And I think what's really interesting is that you know, World War II is something that where we think, uh, how could we possibly learn anything new or different at this point? Because you know, this is the arguably the most widely written about topic in in world history, and you know, a lot of people would not unreasonably say, "Oh, well, you know, we sort of figured everything out that we need to know." I mean, how could there be anything new? And so, it's very refreshing when when books like yours come along and sort of force us to rethink or reconsider things that we thought. Um, we knew, especially a topic as heatly de- debated as as the final months of World War II, because that brings us, of course, to the debates over the atomic bombings, um, which this book is not necessarily about at all. It's about much more than that, but of course, it plays a, as a, a key part. Um, I was wondering, though, before we sort of 
get more into the heart of the book, if you could explain to our listeners what exactly unconditional surrender it is, uh, what unconditional surrender is, where does it come from, um, who sort of came up with it, well, how is that different from perhaps previous surrenders in, in other big wars like World War One? Sure. Um, the um, And there was a lot of controversy, as you can imagine, surrounding that. Um, uh, Franklin Roosevelt uh, promoted the policy for several different reasons. One of them had to do with his own experience as Assistant Secretary of the Navy during World War I. And he recalled that at that time, it was Republicans who were criticizing Woodrow Wilson for not pushing for Germany's unconditional surrender. So one reason then for supporting that policy in World War II would be one might expect to sort of inoculate the administration uh, from any kind of assault from, you know, uh, Republicans on this issue of, of uh, you know, war termination. Um, another reason he supported it was that in the landings in North Africa, uh, he had uh, supported a compromise with the Vichy commander in in North Africa as a way of getting American troops ashore with as few casualties as possible. And when word of that deal, of that sort of appeasement and compromise reached home, it was Roosevelt's liberal supporters who roundly condemned, you know, this compromise with with fascists. And um, and so, I mean, that really stung Roosevelt. Um, he was he was convinced of the rightness of the decision he had made at the time. Um, but nevertheless, this would be a way of reassuring uh, what in today's parlance we would refer to as his base. Right. You know, his liberal supporters that that he wasn't going to compromise with the, the Germans or the Japanese. Um, and, and the policy had been uh, worked on and was recommended by a post-war advisory committee that the president had created. So, so this kind of bubbled up from the uh, bureaucratic machinery that he had created. Um, and, and he was able to get the support of the Joint Chiefs for that, who initially welcomed the policy because it, it provided a nice handy sort of bumper sticker size rallying cry for the American public. You know, what is it that the Americans wanted? They wanted, you know, the total defeat of the Germans and the Japanese, their unconditional surrender. Um, and another reason then was also to tell America's allies, both the Chinese and the Soviet Union, that the United States wasn't going to leave them in the lurch, wasn't going to abandon them and uh, accept some kind of compromise with the fascists. So the policy served, as I said, a kind of, you know, number of different reasons. And Roosevelt defined it as a policy that was designed to sort of tear out the roots of the sort of social organizations in Germany and Japan that had created these militaristic, aggressive societies. So it went beyond just um, forcing the surrender of the enemy's troops, but rather 
that would be the first step towards a kind of comprehensive transformation of those societies so that they wouldn't threaten uh, the peace again. Um, and uh, so that was another sort of objective. That was, you know, the meaning of unconditional surrender to Roosevelt. Now, you know, various jurists and and people in the different legal departments in uh, the State Department and, and in the Pentagon um, began sort of searching for precedent and, and trying to determine what legally the um, victorious allies would be permitted to do uh, under a policy of unconditional surrender. And, and uh, you know, Roosevelt, I mean, he didn't get into the weeds on that issue. For him, as I said, the idea was that Germany and Japan would have to surrender and simply throw themselves on the mercy of the allies, that the allies would not make any deals with the Germans or the Japanese. Um, And that was for him the basis of unconditional surrender that he pursued. Um, So, so with, with, because unconditional surrender is rather sort of novel, um, you know, in this period, I mean, how does the mechanics of it? I mean, how does that, how does that, how does that exactly work? I mean, in terms of, how would someone like Roosevelt have thought about that? Does that mean, you know, it, it doesn't mean stopping at the Rhine, right? It actually means crossing into Germany. But I mean, did they have, did people like Roosevelt or later, later Truman, of course, you know, Germany is basically defeated by the time Truman comes into office. But I mean, did they have these notions that if they invaded, um, you know, Germany and, and later Japan, that this would force the, the Nazis in Germany's case and the militarists in Japan's case to basically abdicate and flee the country to avoid, you know, being killed or, or captured or executed. And then they could occupy these countries and, and change them. Or was it sort of more fuzzy than that? And they didn't really think those things through. I, I think the latter, I do think it was, it was fuzzy. Um, and it, it, that was particularly, I mean, the case in Japan, because what unconditional surrender required in the case of Japan, um, the president was um, informed was the invasion of Japan, which the Americans, you know, the the sort of war plan for the Pacific, which had been designed uh, by the Navy, was um, geared towards the destruction of the Japanese fleet. Um, but but the Navy hadn't really thought past that next step. I mean, that was. That would be the elimination of the danger posed by Japan. But Roosevelt wanted more, and that could only be accomplished, he was told by General Marshall, the Army Chief of Staff, through an invasion. Um, And in in fact, you um, could see the developing, uh, a development of a um, a sort of uh, dispute within the military over this policy because the Navy gradually um, came to um, be critical of unconditional surrender. They, they argued, for example, that, that once the fleet Japanese fleet was defeated, they could uh, blockade 
and and bombard with the Army Air Force, bombard the Japanese mainland and eventually force them, compel their unconditional surrender. But the Army believed that was a flawed strategy because it would take too long uh, after Germany's defeat, it would take too long to compel Japan's unconditional surrender through this strategy of siege. And, the, you know, the army was concerned that the American public would basically lose interest in the war, would not be willing to continue to support this huge military effort that would be required and uh, to, to uh, maintain a siege. And they were afraid that in those circumstances, the Japanese would be able to drag things out and ultimately get the Americans to come to the table and settle for something less than unconditional surrender. And, and that basically was the Japanese strategy then in, in World War, uh, in, in, you know, in the final years of the conflict was to wage this strategy of protracted war inflict as many casualties on the Americans as possible uh, with the expectation that um, at some point before the invasion of the main island, at least of Honshu, that um, the Americans would be willing to settle for something less than unconditional surrender. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, it's 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 interesting here that, you know, unconditional surrender sounds like it's really clear cut. Right. But I mean, what we're sort of quickly gleaning from this conversation is that it's actually incredibly complicated and doesn't it create not only does it create a whole host of problems that wouldn't have exist with, you know, sort of more traditional forms of surrender, but it doesn't in a lot of ways doesn't really solve a lot of the problems that more traditional forms of surrender um you know, posed and that and that Roosevelt and and later uh, Truman were trying to sort of solve with this with this kind of policy because it sort of created um, you know a lot of new diplomatic and and political and logistical questions um, that had not really been confronted before and and so that's that's what's really fascinating about about this policy. Um, so you know, moving now, moving really sort of into the core of the book. Okay, so Germany surrenders. In, in May of 1945, you know, Hitler uh, commits suicide um, at the end of April, uh, along with a lot of leading Nazis. And then the rest of them either flee Germany, they're captured um, or killed. And uh, the Allies win the war in Europe and um, then proceed to, to occupy Germany. But at the same time, you know, days before this happened, uh, Franklin Roosevelt, who had been president of the United States for, for 12 years, um, uh, dies in his vacation home in, in Warm Springs, Georgia, and his uh, vice president uh, Harry Truman um, ascends to the presidency and and occupies the Oval Office. So, you know, it, Truman inherits this policy from from his predecessor Roosevelt of unconditional surrender. And and so, what what are Truman's views on it? I mean, does he agree with Roosevelt? Does he have different conceptions of it? I mean, how does how does he view? unconditional surrender. I mean, we, you sort of spoke about it a, a little bit before, but, you know, in those first days, what are his thoughts on on that, but also the war against Japan in general? Well, he, um, he supported the policy because it was Roosevelt's um, policy, and, and he um, 
recognize very quickly that um, at least in the at the moment when he ascended to the presidency, that that's what the American people wanted. I mean, he gave this speech to uh, Congress shortly after Roosevelt died, and he said, "Our our goal remains unconditional surrender of Japan," and that that line got the most applause of any one that he uttered in that uh, in that speech, and and that was not lost on him. Uh, you know that this was something that at the moment, at least, the public seemed to want. But the public and Congress, as it turns out, wanted several things, and some some of them were contradictory. Uh, what they wanted was, was to speed, you know, no surprise there, they wanted to speed up this process of demobilization, which began with the German surrender, and they wanted to bring the boys home. Uh, and... If you were to speed up this process of demobilization, the Americans um, found out, the army found out very quickly, you would create uh, this enormous backlog in shipping because the priority was supposed to be given to the troops that would be redeployed from Europe to the Pacific theater. Um, And the public was basically saying, no, we want those ships to be used for uh, to bring the veterans of the European theater who were eligible for discharge, uh, to bring them home as quickly as possible. And so you began to have this tension almost immediately. And uh, added to that was this growing concern about the state of the economy in the United States. And Truman was getting uh, warnings that if the United States didn't begin this process of reconversion soon, it would not be prepared, um, the economy would not be prepared to adapt once the war was over and that um, they would face this sort of recession or possibly depression-like you know, set of conditions. And Truman, I think as probably most people listening know, I mean, he, he had weathered those... Uh, the conditions after World War One, right? His haberdashery went out of business, and and uh, and so he, you know, he understood what he was being told, and yet the army insisted that, uh, in particularly the army and uh, Under Secretary of the Army uh, Robert Patterson was adamant about this that they could not sort of relent; they couldn't ease up on Japan in any way, and that meant no reconversion. It meant no releasing special, specially skilled soldiers to help, um, you know, sectors of the economy like the railroads, for example, that needed skilled workers back. Um, and, and Truman for the time being sided with Patterson, um, on that issue. But, but during the summer, you had this tension then building between, you know, the public's demand for the bring the soldiers home, but also this growing desire to begin reconversion in the economy. And yet, you know, Truman was sticking to this policy that would um, result in the invasion of Japan. Um, and, and so he was sort of riding it out at that time. Um, and, and it's at that moment, I mean, in that, in those moments in early summer 
of 45 that some of the highest ranking officials in the administration began to uh, try to persuade Truman to modify unconditional surrender. Um, and, and, you know, I, I mentioned uh, Henry Stimson and uh, who was secretary of war and Joseph grew the undersecretary of state, former ambassador to Japan, both of them, you know, very conservative uh, establishment figures uh, Republican identified with the Republican Party, and and they were telling Truman um, that you know the the problem with Japan was really this problem of this militaristic cla- uh, class that existed, and if you kind of scrape that away, then Japan will be okay. That there were these moderates who had been suppressed by the militarists and. Um, the emperor was on the side of the moderates. So if you tell the Japanese that they can keep the emperor, if they surrender, then that would tip the scales in favor of the moderates. And the militarists would um, basically uh, be uh, overwhelmed by the aura of the emperor siding with this other um, with with this other group, and and they were saying, you know, the emperor is just a figurehead. Um, he's not influential in Japanese policy, and we can use him. They said um, to our purposes once uh, he surrenders. You know, once Japan surrenders, and so that was. And they, I mean, it's very interesting because they called on their knowledge of Japanese history. Uh, I mean, Joseph Grew was giving um, Truman uh, a history lesson. It was a pretty flawed one, as it turns out. Um, and I, I wanted to say that, uh, you know, Grew was mansplaining uh, Japanese history to, uh, uh, <laughs> yeah. to Truman, but my, my editor nixed that idea. Um, and, and, uh, <laughs> but it, but uh, that's basically the case. I mean, He said things like, well, you know, Japan had been at peace as it modernized and, um, and, you know, what they had accomplished in in such a short period of time from the middle of 19th century really was impressive. And, and, and he said, and the emperor was responsible for that, the Meiji emperor, the, and, and, uh, and he neglected to say that, I mean, Japan had gone to war with China, had gone to war with Russia, had occupied Korea and and Taiwan and colonized those areas. And and it kind of, you know, sort of buried the lead there. Um, and and uh, I, Truman at that point was um, noncommittal, really. He 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 put Stimson and grew off. He also met with Herbert Hoover, who who was still this sort of leader of the Republican Party uh, out of office, and uh, and Hoover made the same pitch to him, and um, you know they they all dismissed the desire for unconditional surrender as the kind of uh, uh, this sort of passionate. Um, sort of violent yearnings of, uh, you know, uneducated masses and who wanted revenge, you know. 
Um, and so they were kind of very dismissive of anybody who dis- thought that um, there was more to this sort of militarism in Japan than than the um, generals, some admirals, but generals who had kind of taken over and and uh, um, and that's you know Hoover continues that he even suggested that the United States should let the Japanese keep Korea and Taiwan because they the Japanese had done such a good job of civilizing those places you know um, I mean and uh, uh, I, I think you know Truman had met with Hoover because he wanted the former president's input on the food problem. I don't, I don't think he was looking for political advice from Herbert Hoover. No, um, definitely, definitely doesn't seem like it. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, they, Hoover comes away from that thinking that he later claimed Truman told him he was going to modify unconditional surrender. Mm. Um but there's nothing in Hoover's notes at the time that indicates that Truman had made um, that promise. And, and that's something I think later that Hoover conjured up out of his memory. But it, it, I, don't, I, don't, I don't believe it occurred at the time. At least we don't have any right. evidence. Um, yeah, there's, there definitely yeah. seems to be a lot of that with, uh, yes. with yes, this period, is. a lot of conjuring up. Yeah, that is – I mean, I, glad you brought that up. I mean, that is one of the themes of the book is the way in which um, people, um, as I said, sort of produce alternative facts um, uh, after the event um, because unconditional surrender ultimately became very controversial um, because it was linked to the atomic bombs and and, uh, a number of people wanted to distance themselves from the policy. So talking about figures like Stimson and Grew, I mean, Grew, I know less about it, but Stimson I'm, is the subject of my dissertation. And his views, on, his views on Japan are very fascinating because long before he even you know, thought that he was going to be coming back into government uh, during, uh, during the Second World War, he's giving speeches. I mean, even in 1934, not long after he resigns as secretary of state and had been dealing with the Japanese during the Manchurian crisis. Um, not only does he tell this Roosevelt privately, um, during a lunch that they have in the spring of that year, but in November of that year, he's giving a talk at his alma mater, uh, Yale. And he's saying that, you know, if he's basically advocating for this policy of extended deterrence with the Japanese at the time and, and sort of pushing for a um, very muscular U.S. naval presence in, in the Western Pacific, because he's arguing that if the Japanese can be basically cajoled into not uh, continuing their territorial expansion, then the militarists will sort of lose popularity, and then these moderates will come back into power, and Japan will sort of rejoin the international community. So what's interesting here is that his views on unconditional surrender are sort of stemming from these long-held um, beliefs that he has about sort of Japanese culture, politics, and society. I mean, I, I think that, and also history, um, which he, you know, to, to use to use the phrase that you were using, he does a lot of mansplaining as well, especially before Pearl Harbor, you know, with people like Cordell Hell telling him that, you know, they don't understand Japanese history and this is what we have to do to get the Japanese to listen to us. I mean, they're all kind of wind up being wrong about it as, as sort of they're going to painfully realize. But, um, What's interesting is that 
Stimson, um, you know, for all of this experience that he has with them, I, I mean, I, it seems that he's sort of missing the boat a lot on on what's actually happening within Japan and, and grew as well. So, but in the Stimson case, I mean, his his sort of my evolving views on unconditional surrender are, I guess, not entirely surprising. But it's sort of interesting to to think. Well, they supported this rather whole. I mean, Simpson supported unconditional surrender um, pretty strongly with Germany. But then, what sort of precipitates in this period that starts getting them rethinking this about Japan? Whereas before, I guess they either had not really said that much, or I guess sort of by default supported it. Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. It, it is this. You know, there is a question of timing and. Um, that is important in this. Before I get to that, I do want to say in, in relation to what you were talking about with Stimson, I, I would add that his, you know, his experience and the American experience during uh, the 1920s with Japan had been fairly constructive. Um, you know, the Washington Naval Conference and and I, I think uh, particularly since China was sort of had descended into this division you know, a divisiveness and warlord rule that Americans had a more favorable uh, perception of Japan in the 1920s. And, and that, that also influenced, I think, uh, Stimson's belief and uh, that you were talking about. And, and I think for him and Gru, I mean, they had to rely on the English speaking Japanese more cosmopolitan figures in in the Japanese government, and they got a different picture of what was going on in Japan from those people who, you know, also I mean, continued to hope that they would be able to stay in power. And so I think they're part of the problem was that the sources they were getting for information about Japan. Um, presented that with a, a distorted view of the, you know, kind of internal dynamics of the Japanese political situation. So coming now to the the point where Gru and Stimson and Hoover and others are beginning to raise this question of unconditional surrender, there's a couple things. One, um, and it's always uppermost in people's minds, is this is a way to save American lives, um, plain and simple. Um, and, um, and, and the belief that if you believe that, that you don't have to do a lot to Japan to bring it back into the family of nations, then it seems like a unjustifiably extravagant waste of American lives to pursue unconditional surrender. Um, and so that's part of his view and, and it's Hoover's view and, and Gru's as well. But the other part, and you can't separate this kind of growing movement to modify unconditional surrender from this issue is the growing concern over the presence of the Soviet Union in Central Europe and what it will mean to have the Soviets uh, invade Northeast Asia, uh, uh, Manchuria, and um, given that the Americans were already having difficulty with the Soviet Union, 
Um, and, you know, the policy of unconditional surrender at that point, without the assurance of the atomic bomb, um, made Soviet entry into the war seem absolutely necessary. And so if you're concerned, like Gru was, I mean, he, you know, he had trouble sleeping, I point out, you know, thinking about this. And, and uh, uh, if you're worried about what Russian entry into the war will mean for China, um, then um, one way to forestall that is to get the Japanese to surrender before the Russians are able to come in. Um, and that, that means modification of unconditional surrender. Um, and that aspect of the strategy um, and of the argument for modifying unconditional surrender is, you know, not a very well-kept secret in Washington, uh, in, in, in part because it's almost, you know, the, the Manhattan Project was the one secret they were able to keep pretty well, not from the Russians, but at least from the American people. Um, but but this, this growing concern about the Russians in some quarters of the government uh, was well known. And, and in fact, was being discussed in the newspapers by, in journals of opinion, and uh, it was the stuff of political cartoons and the like. And um, so, you know, here's another way in which this debate kind of upsets our contemporary sort of understanding of these issues. Um, I mean the people who wanted to modify unconditional surrender were really in a way kind of budding cold warriors, right? I mean, it's usually, it's usually the assumption today is that Truman, you know, um, was the cold warrior for um, uh, demanding Japan's unconditional surrender. So um, because he wanted to bomb the Japanese and make an example of them, to the Russians and that sort of thing. And, and uh, the reality is that, that the people who were most worried about the Russians were the ones who were promoting this policy of unconditional surrender. And, and the sort of corollary of that was that they were also concerned that by demanding Japan's unconditional surrender, the war would drag on so long that the Japanese people might, and this was something the emperor worried about, might rise up and create a revolution that would sort of pave the way for communism in Japan or the spread of Soviet influence in Japan. Um, and, and that was another fear that Grew and Stimson had, that the policy would, you know, wreak havoc with uh, the conditions within Japan and sow the seeds of revolution, um, which is something they both dreaded. Um, so Right. Well, so... So, something that is sort of, I think, um, fu- you know, fu- fuzzy about those who were sort of concerned about this is because one of the things that, um, as we know, that Roosevelt was sort of pushing the Soviets on and, and Stalin in particular in their face-to-face meetings um, was Soviet entry into the war against Japan, right? I mean, this, mm-hmm. is, this is a huge demand that Roosevelt has of Stalin both um, in Tehran and at Yalta. And Stalin sort of keeps, you know, pushing it off. Um, but, you know, at, uh, I believe at Yalta tells Roosevelt that 
you know, I'll, I'll have my country enter the war against Japan no later than three months after Germany's defeat. I, that's right. Yeah. So, so why is it then that, I mean, because a lot of, obviously, uh, as well, a lot of the people who are surrounding Truman were also surrounding Roosevelt. I mean, and Truman explicitly, you know, made sure that every, he kept as many people as possible um, so that he could sort of continue Roosevelt's policies um, to the greatest extent that he desired, which, as you were sort of indicating, was was to a, a rather large extent. Um, so were Roosevelt's advisors who becomes Truman silent on the issue of, of Soviet entry into Japan, Soviet entry into the war against Japan because they knew Roosevelt desired it so heavily? What pushes them, to, in other words, to become more concerned about this in the spring and summer of 1945 than perhaps earlier when they knew that the commander in chief was, was pushing his Soviet allies to enter the war um, so strongly. Well, I I think part of it has to do with the, the reality of the situation in, in, you know, 1944 um, when Americans were taking heavy casualties after landing in Normandy and, and um, you know, fighting. And especially after the war, you know, they, they were hoping they might be able to wrap things up by the end of 1945. And of course that, or 44 rather, and that didn't turn out to be the case. I mean, at that moment, the Soviet <laughs> Union seems indispensable. Um, and, and the, there's little point in sort of arguing that, uh the Americans don't need them against Japan uh, and at that point. But I think once the situation, it, you know, made a turn for the better in the spring of 45, um, then the Soviet Union becomes a little more dispensable, if you will. And, and also the reality of what the Soviet Union looked like in Eastern Europe, you know, having the, the actual reality of the Red Army in Eastern Europe kind of gave people a vivid idea of what um, what they could expect probably in Asia as well. Um, so those are two factors. Then, of course, is, you know, the expectation that the atomic bomb will be ready. And that's some, something that Stimson was uh, very much attuned to. Too and 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 so well maybe maybe then you don't need the Russians is the argument um, and uh, um, you know it's interesting because that's the argument they were making but most people in Congress uh, because they weren't aware of the atomic bomb they were saying you know bring it on bring the Russians in <laughs> they you know anything that will use fewer Americans and allow us to get American troops home which will make my constituents happy um, is just fine with me at that point. They weren't thinking geostrategically at that point. They were, you know, as they say, all politics is local. And, and, uh, and they were, they were interested in, in, uh, you know, ending the war as quickly as they could. And, and, uh, you know, beginning this transformation of the economy. So, um, you know, you've got these different groups who perceive the Soviet Union differently at that moment. The American public, you know, generally, you know, while they didn't have a favorable opinion uh, of the Soviet Union uh, by any stretch, nevertheless, they weren't, uh, you know, they weren't in a frame of mind where they wanted to think about the possibility 
of a post-war contest um, with the Soviet Union. Uh, you know, again, they wanted the war over. They wanted to bring the troops home. They wanted uh, to enjoy some of the fruits of the prosperity they had been, uh, you know, uh, beginning to enjoy um, as a result of the kind of wartime uh, buildup. And they weren't looking um, past that, really, for um, a continuation of a kind of a tense situation in international affairs. Um, and, and so, um, you know, this was sort of an uphill battle for people like Gru and uh, Stimson. I mean, within the government, there were people who were who shared their concerns. I point out in the Navy, um, Secretary of the Navy Forrestal, um, the Navy's uh, chief planner, Guy Admiral uh, Charles uh, uh, Savvy, he was known, um, Savvy Cook, you know, were saying, well, you know, we want to be careful. We don't weaken Japan to the point where they are incapable of serving as a, you know, a balance or a bulwark against the Russians. I mean, this is while the war is going on. They're they're talking about uh, the possibility that that uh, the defeat of Japan would create a vacuum in the Far East, um, and and that the Soviet Union would fill. Um, I mean, that's not a conversation that the American public would want to hear. You know, at right. that point. Right, um, you know, um, and and so for Cook and Forrestal, they they sought to modify unconditional surrender, and again, it's linked to this idea of what the reality of Soviet intervention uh, might be like. So, so okay, so this debate is happening within the U.S. government. Um, you know, in the weeks after Germany's demise. Um, you have different groups of advisors, um, you know, arguing for different things. I, I think that much is is clear. But Truman is sort of, as you write in the book, is keeping his counsel close. Um, he's not really um, clearly expressing his views. He sort of gives these vague acknowledgments of of his advisors' recommendations, um, which makes them think that they agree, which is um, something that Roosevelt also used to do, which I thought was an interesting thing to note. Um, and so, you know, we're getting now to, you know, moving ahead a little bit to, to the Potsdam Conference in, in July of 1945, how does, and so Truman for the first time is meeting with uh, Joseph Stalin and with Churchill, um, of course, and then Churchill's going to, of course, lose the 1945 general election in Britain, the first one in 10 years, and is going to be replaced as prime minister by his wartime deputy and also leader of the Labor Party, uh, Clement Attlee. So how, how did the conversations around unconditional surrender um, play out uh, at Potsdam because, of course, unconditional surrender is a major part of the um, Potsdam Declaration to Japan. Later, um, you know, so what are the discussions revolved revolving around um, around that exactly? Yeah, well, um, Stimson sort of invites himself to right. Potsdam <laughs> and yeah. brings with him a um, copy of this draft that. Uh, a committee he headed uh, was actually the assistant secretary, John McCloy, but um, they produced with, uh, in conjunction with some army staff officers, this, uh, what becomes known as a Potsdam declaration. And it contains this uh, controversial 
pledge that if the Japanese surrender, um, they will be able to choose um, a government of their own, including one um, that uh, consists of the present dynasty. Um, and that kind of leaves, still leaves a little vague as to whether it means Hirohito or maybe his son or one of his siblings or something, but it, it, it leaves the imperial institution intact. And, and the idea was, well, we don't know if the Japanese will accept this because they, Americans were at that moment reading uh, the Japanese diplomatic traffic and everything they saw from that indicated that the Japanese had um, more than one um, issue that they they thought was non-negotiable, that the emperor was one of them. And, and in particular, preserving the emperor in a way that did not affect Japan's governing structure. That was really important um, to them, which gave the military a privileged position in that society. And they wanted to disarm themselves. They wanted to try their own war criminals, and they didn't want an occupation of, of Japan. Those were conditions that the, the Japanese thought were sort of irreducible. I mean, they, they would not accept anything less than that. And, and so, you know, the, the Americans are thinking, well, those people who advocated making this promise on the emperor, they said, well, it might not work, but it's worth a try. Um, and, um, uh, Truman and his new Secretary of State, uh, former Senator and Supreme Court Justice and uh, um, James Burns, um, they delete that pledge, that promise from the Potsdam Declaration. And in its place to say Japan will be able to have a government uh, of its own choosing so long as it is clear to the Allies that uh, it won't disturb the peace and so on. So um, there was a lot of back and forth on that at Potsdam, that very issue. And in the end, Truman uh, declined to make any uh, promise on the, on the fate of the emperor. And there's no question that having the atomic bomb at that point made that decision a little bit easier for him to make, thinking, well, we're presenting what are some pretty reasonable terms to the Japanese because it promised the Japanese that the Americans, I mean, weren't going to destroy the Japanese as a people, that they were going to eventually, they were going to strengthen democratic tendencies. They were going to uh, include, uh, welcome the Japanese back into the family of nations at some point. So this wasn't, you know, they weren't going to sort of attempt to, um, you know, to, completely destroy Japan and salt the earth. And, and uh, um, so, you know, it was, as I say, a fairly lenient uh, look at what the Japanese could expect, certainly a lot more lenient than the Japanese ever, um, uh, you know, anything they ever did in the areas they occupied uh, during the war. Um, but it didn't have that one clause. But, you know, still Truman's thinking, okay, maybe the atomic bomb will make them see the reasonableness of this offer at that point. Um, 
And, and so um, he was surprised when after both atomic bombs and Russian entry into the war, the Japanese on August 10th sent this message, well, we're willing to surrender uh, on, or actually we're willing to accept the terms of the Potsdam Declaration uh, so long as they don't um, prejudice the, the um, prerogatives of the emperor um, as the sovereign ruler of Japan. And, you know, people quickly realized that those prerogatives were kind of significant. Although at that moment, you know, Stimson was willing to accept that. And so was uh, Admiral William Leahy, who had been uh, FDR's uh, representative on the Joint Chiefs. And they were both saying, yeah, let's let's take it. That's a good deal. And, and uh, um, Burns, in his, um, he later said, well, you know, Leahy had convinced Truman at that moment to accept it, and I had to convince him, you know, that it would be a bad idea. But, but again, there's no indication that Truman had actually um, been willing to accept the the terms that the Japanese gave. And we find out then in these days between the American reply, which is to say the emperor will be subject to the commander-in-chief of the Allied forces, um, which implies that the emperor will be around, but it doesn't say for how long, right? Um, and while Americans are anxiously waiting for what it is the Japanese will do, Truman makes it clear to two senators, one of them is uh, Mike Mansfield, that he thinks um, Hirohito is as guilty as Mussolini and Hitler. And he's trying to weasel out of it now. Um, that's his view of things. And, and I suggest, well, that was his view all along. That he, he, did, not, he did not believe Gru when Gru told him, well, the emperor is you know, uninvolved and, and all the rest. And, and I don't know, and I said, I don't know where he got that idea from. Maybe just from speeches in Congress. Um, and he, it was, I mean, he was mistaken also. I mean, it, 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 Hirohito did not wield the kind of power that uh, Mussolini or Hitler did, you know, so that was an exaggeration. But he was closer to the mark than Stimson and Gru were in, in understanding that the emperor was significant, uh, a significant part of this power structure that had governed Japan and made this, you know, move towards this aggressive policy in Asia possible. Um, and, and he was reluctant to do anything that would um, kind of preserve the emperor, the emperor's status uh, is the best way to put it. Um, so. so, so, so what happens then, you know, in that, um, I mean, now we've sort of have jumped quite a bit, but um, I mean, so, so two things though, I mean, one, we sort of have uh, avoided, I think more explicitly talking about the atomic bombings and i for, for the purposes of, you know, not wanting to be here for, for years on end. Um, I, we don't need to have a whole sort of debate about whether the bombings um, were necessary um, because I think that, you know, 
again, we would, would be here for a long time having that conversation. But um, I guess the question is, where do the bombings fit into the unconditional surrender formula? That's question one. And then question two is, after the second bomb is dropped on Nagasaki on August 9th, 1945, and then the Japanese sort of give that reply on the 10th, saying they're willing to accept um, the tenets of the Potsdam Declaration, you know, provide the emperor's lab to sort of keep his role, and then the Americans reply to that. What's happening in Japan in between sort of their reply on the 10th and then their eventual surrender on the 15th? I mean, what changes in that period? I mean, my understanding of it, which is quite um, rudimentary uh, at this point, is that sort of Hirohito is sort of seen as like the swing, and he sort of swings his... Um, his weight towards the moderates who no longer want to continue the war while the militarists had been willing to sort of keep fighting in that, you know, he winds up being the linchpin there and, and then they eventually surrender. So first question is where the atomic bombings fit into all this. Second question is what's happening internally within Japan um, to make them shift their, their position quite starkly. Well, as I mentioned, I, I just touched on it briefly. I mean, I think Truman, recognized that the um, atomic bombs created the possibility that that he could accomplish Japan's unconditional surrender without the bloodletting uh, American loss of life of an invasion and and that the war could be brought to an end very quickly was his hope um, as a result of that. And, and so, I mean, it's sort of interesting. I report, you know, that he has this conversation with Lord Mountbatten, the uh, British commander of uh, Southeast Asian command. And who said, when he's told about the bomb, he said, well, it, it might it not be better if we were able to sort of gather up our forces and get them to the starting line so that when Japan was ready to surrender, we could move in very quickly and occupy all these areas in Southeast Asia where the Japanese troops were at that moment. Um, and uh, it would make for a smoother kind of political transition. And that would mean waiting a little bit. And Truman said, well, no, we can't wait. We can't let this war go on for another day, basically, longer than it already has. And, and there, I mean, I, I, you know, he's, I think, recognizing that, you know, the, the loss of life was continuous at this point, even though the Americans were no longer fighting, um, you know, they had taken Okinawa and they, you know, but they were bombing Japan, but elsewhere across Asia, I mean, the war continued. And, um, and so the, the bombs, I think, enable him to see a way out of the invasion and still accomplish Japan's unconditional surrender. Um, and I, I point out there's also then he gets suddenly this sort of glimmer, you know, well, maybe we can even kind of get a head start on the Russians or limit their involvement uh, in Northeast Asia um, at that point. And um, I don't think he, ever believed he could keep the Russians out of the war. Um, you know, they were coming in. Um, but there was some hope. I mean, after all, they had told the Joint Chiefs they would be in around the 15th, possibly. Um, and uh, the uh, 
the army planners had said, well, you know, it'll take maybe 30 days before the Russians really get rolling in Northeast Asia. So if you have that information, you might think, well, we might be in a better position to, you know, forestall Soviet gains in Northeast Asia. But, it, but again, that was not the primary motivation. I, I, I do, you know, believe, I think with a lot of other historians, it concern was to, was to save lives front, that would be lost in an invasion and at the same time achieve, you know, the principal war aim of unconditional surrender. And, um, you know, I point out subsequent to that, I mean, Truman makes it very clear that he understood unconditional surrender as uh, the first step in a process of remaking Japan. Um, and when he gets some initial resistance or sees signs of resistance from the occupation commander, Douglas MacArthur, he makes it very clear that, that you know, the Americans are in Japan, you know, they're occupying Japan because they are going to carry out this program of reform, which had been worked on uh, within the, go- the American government over the previous, you know, two and a half years. And um, he, you know, he locks horns with MacArthur on this issue. Um, um, so he's he's pretty committed to that, um, is how I would put it. That, that, again, I mean, it's important to understand it's not, unconditional surrender is not an end in itself. It is a means to an end. Yeah. Right. And, and so now sort of moving to my other question, yeah. which is, yeah, what, what, so what's happening in Japan that, in that sort of five-day period um, yeah. between their response? I, I guess, yeah, go ahead. Uh, no, I, that's a really good question. I mean, part of it, it's very difficult to know exactly because, um, so the, you know, a lot of records were destroyed um, and and they're the number one goal of, most of the people around the emperor was to protect him and his reputation. Um, so the, the picture we have is that the emperor finally concluded that um, the military was just incapable of defending uh, uh, Japan. Like they said, you know, they had been waiting for this sort of apocalyptic battle that, would take place when the Americans invaded and, and the hope was that they could inflict enough casualties that it would make the Americans want to uh, uh, negotiate with the Japanese. Well, that pretty much is, it's clear once the atomic bombs uh, are detonated over Japan, you know, that, that the Americans probably won't have to invade. And then on top of that, you know, the Japanese had been hoping to get the Russians to act as a mediator uh, between them and the Americans. And when the Russians entered the war, of course, that dashed any expectation that you could use the Russians against the Americans um, uh, to, um, to help preserve Japan's position. Um, so I think those events together, I mean, historians go round and round some people in this debate about what was more influential, you know, would Russian entry by itself have produced this result 
or was it the atomic bombs? And I, there, I, there's no way I, you can separate those things out. Uh, I, I think, and and uh, um, but together, it's pretty clear they kind of removed any possibility um, that Japan could withstand uh, the Allies, and um, so. At that point, yes, the emperor m- makes it clear that um, they have to uh, endure the unendurable. Um, but what is what is interesting throughout this, when they were seeking Soviet assistance and um, when uh, the emperor is talking about what they're going to do, they <laughs> steadfastly avoid the use of the word surrender. I mean, you know, when the Russian, I mean, when, when they were seeking the assistance of the Russians, uh, it, you know, they, they wanted peace. They wanted to end the war. They weren't talking about surrender. And, it, and at no point did the Japanese actually try to open uh, diplomatic conversations with the Americans. You know, there was, I mean, no thought of that at all. There are a few of these uh, historians refer to them as the peace entrepreneurs, these kind of lower level officials in Europe who were broaching the subject with um, intermediaries and, um, you know, hoping that they could begin some kind of conversation with American representatives. And every one of them gets sort of, you know, jerked back by, you know, Tokyo and told, you know, don't pursue this. Uh, don't um, don't think for a minute that um, you know we're going to uh, negotiate with the Americans. And um, so um, you know they they were left with the Russians, basically. Right. Sw- switching gears a little bit, just to talk about you know sort of the domestic politics of all this, um, which I thought was a very sort of interesting side of this that is, I think, as you rightfully point out, really often left out of this whole story is, is that something that really sort of struck me was that the Republicans at the time were really against unconditional surrender. And this sort of was, you know, I guess maybe unsurprisingly from a contemporary standpoint, just sort of another, you know, partisan flashpoint. But I think at the same time, their their opposition to unconditional surrender, in part from you know their Republicans and, and Truman as a Democrat, um, it was a little perplexing because they had you know had so loudly and so vociferously had condemned Roosevelt um, after the Yalta uh, conference, um, you know, in saying that Roosevelt had sold out Eastern Europe to. Um, you know, to the Soviets and, you know, they, you know, were, so I guess in other words, really sort of condemning his more conciliatory policies towards them. But then in this case, I mean, again, they're very, or not again, but they're very different contexts, of course. But I guess on that, to some extent, you would think that they would be more supportive of this because they wouldn't want the Soviets to try and get involved in the war against Japan at all to give them any leverage in, in deciding the, the post-war balance there. Well, well, that's why they favored modification of unconditional surrender. If if you get the Japanese to surrender quickly, it keeps the Russians out. I mean, they they didn't want to be conciliatory towards the Russians, but they were willing to be conciliatory towards the Japanese. In effect, I mean, that's where it that's how it comes down. And and 
again, I mean, you know, they, were, they had multiple reasons, just like Roosevelt did. Um, and uh, so I, I think um, what happens is after the war, because the policy is associated with Roosevelt, um, when the, you know, the American position in Asia is, you know, er- eroded by the Chinese communist victory and, and then this sort of out break of the Korean War. And, you know, there's this image of this kind of red tide uh, seeping down over Asia from the Soviet Union. Uh, People begin to ask, you know, how did that happen? And part of the explanation that the Republicans give is that these communist sympathizers or agents in the Roosevelt administration, which after all was, they said, you know, socialistic, um, was sympathetic to the communists and it, and um, and those people then, uh, you know, engineered American policy in a way that made it possible for the Russians to gain maximum advantage um, in the post-war world. And one of the ways they did that, according to these critics, was to promote the policy of unconditional surrender. They said. Can't you see unconditional surrender? It prolonged the war, made it possible for the for the Russians to get into the war. It um, threatened the possibility of revolution in in Japan, which was a Russian objective as well. And and after all, the the American Communist Party supported unconditional surrender um, because the Soviets did, and 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 therefore. This was a policy. I mean, Hoover makes this accusation, but others do too. They, in writing, in I think it's Arthur Crock. I mean, who refers to the pink publications, as he calls them, that were calling for unconditional surrender. You know, meaning they weren't quite red like communists, but they were they were close. And uh, and uh, and so you get this school of thought. Then I mean, it's a kind of subset of the you know, Joseph McCarthy, who lost China argument, is that unconditional surrender was part of that program to drag out the war and create maximum advantage for the Soviet Union um, and, uh, uh, you know, hinder China, you know, Chinese nationalists and and so on. And, and I cite these various books that um, are published in the post-war period that are making this argument in ways in which that argument uh, gets recycled um, and and right down to the John Birch Society uh, to today. Um, you know, so it's that that wing of the and 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 uh, you know, but it's Herbert Hoover who makes that argument, and Douglas MacArthur ultimately, and you know, some other people, otherwise sort of credible people. And, and in order to make that argument, they have to accept, um, you know, evidence that is clearly, um, you know, false, manufactured. Uh, one argument is that the Japanese were actually ready to surrender in February of 1945 and that that uh, message had been conveyed to Roosevelt but he ignored it because he wanted the Russians to come in the war, right? That's the argument. Um, and um, I mean, there's no evidence for, the, for that. I mean, it, the, the, the idea is absurd, but 
it gets traction within these uh, this community of scholars. I mean, it is a conspiratorial outlook, um, but these people are producing, um, you know, well-sourced books. I mean, they, they, they're footnoted, they have a bibliography, they're using government documents and everything. So they have the, um, the kind of look of a scholarly uh, critique. Um, but, um, but, but as I say, they're, they're not at all critical about the evidence that they're using. Yes. And that, and, and, yeah. 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 And I was going to say just a, an absolute classic of, uh, books like that, both, uh, of the period and, and more contemporarily as well. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Um, um, my, my final question though is sort of is building off of this, which is, you know, given all of the, I mean, sort of works like this, you know, that have, you know, been sort of distorting um, our understanding of the, of the ending of world war two and specifically with, um, you know, unconditional surrender. My final question is, sort of looking back on this period from our present moment at the end of 2021, I mean, how should we remember unconditional surrender and its role in, in ending World War II? I mean, how how has it, I guess, impacted our understanding of, of the war and, and how should we properly remen- remember it, um, you know, sort of moving forward? Yeah, well, that that's that's a really that's a huge question. Uh, you said you wanted to get out of here in a, in a minute or two, huh? Well, uh, I, I I think it's important to understand, as I mentioned before, that unconditional surrender was a prerequisite for what it was the Americans intended to do in Japan, and 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 I'll my refuge for this is the eminent. Uh, scholar of modern Japan, John Dower, who I cite as saying, you know, everything that was done in the occupation, um, and and there was a lot that was done constructive. I mean, it's hardly an unalloyed success, but it it, it is, as these things go, I mean, pretty uh, successful. And um, and he says, you know, would not have been possible without, un, you know, unconditional surrender and the unconditional authority that the Americans had. Um, and uh, I think that's, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm willing to accept that interpretation. At the same time, I, I think it's also important to acknowledge that um, without the atomic bombs, uh, the, uh, accomplishing Japan's unconditional surrender would have been extremely difficult for the Americans. Uh, and that's one of the arguments of, of Implacable Foes, that book that I, I wrote with my mentor, uh, Waldo Heinrich. So is it, it was, you know, Japan's strategy of prolonging the war and hoping to hold out long enough um, uh, for the Americans to sort of finally come to the table had a chance of success, even, I mean, you know, the Japanese leadership seemed willing to uh, accept the uh, deaths of, of, you know, hundreds of thousands of Japanese along the way. Um, um, but there was this possibility were it not for uh, the atomic bombs and, and, uh, and then Russian entry into the war. Um so that raises the question of, of 
I think the trend, this is, a, you know, Russell Wigley, another one of my advisors, the American, late uh, Russell Wigley, American military historian, had pointed out that, you know, the tendency in modern warfare was to sort of lose its ability to produce acceptable results, you know, um, or results that with it, you know, a conclusion that would be um, acceptable to the people fighting and, and even to the victors, um, that that was the nature of warfare. And, and uh, you know, Americans find this out very quickly in Korea that, you know, there's not going to be any unconditional surrender of the Chinese and North Koreans. And, and of course, they learned that in Vietnam. And then, uh, I mean, with the invasion of Iraq um, in 2003, the Secretary of Defense is saying we we want nothing less than, you know, Saddam Hussein's unconditional surrender. Well, <laughs> that didn't that didn't that didn't happen either. And and so one one consequence of this victory is it makes it seem like that policy, which is enshrined in this famous ceremony on the USS, you know, deck of the Missouri with uh, MacArthur you know, holding forth and everything. And it is, you know, this sort of emblem of America's total victory in the Pacific War. And and uh, um, at that very moment, that's, you know, uh, it, it's illusory. I mean, it's, it's not going to happen again. Um, at least it hasn't, you know, hasn't happened yet. Um, that that unconditional surrender becomes unachievable. Uh, I mean, in part because Americans aren't going to use, they realize very quickly they can't use atomic weapons again. They can't, they couldn't use them in Vietnam. And, you know, so, so it, there is this sort of paradox um, with the achievement of unconditional surrender then as well. Right. Well, I think that's a, that's a great place to end our conversation. So Mark, I want to say thank you so much for, for joining me. Um, on the podcast uh, today. I really enjoy talking to, with you. The book is Unconditional, The Japanese Surrender in World War II, which was published in September 2020 uh, by Oxford University Press. Mark, thank you so much again. Really illuminating, really insightful conversation. Uh, you're, you're welcome. I, I really enjoyed the conversation. Uh, thank you. All right. Thanks, Mark. Bye-bye. Bye.